Hello and welcome to What Happens in Vegas. I'm your host, Laura Rizzuto, and together with the help of my incredible guests, we will explore all that is possible when we acknowledge our humanness and harness the power of our nervous system, mind and spirit. I am so excited to share this episode with you, so let's dive straight in, shall we? Hey lovely, just wanted to let you know that today's podcast does discuss themes of suicidality, domestic violence and sexual abuse. If that is not your jam today, that is totally okay. I invite you to check in with what you're needing and if this is not it, then I invite you to check out one of the other podcasts that we have going on the channel. Take care of yourself and I will catch you in another episode. I'm so excited to share this episode with you. I just got off the call with the incredible Beck Cameron. We talk about her work as a coach, her background in social work, the ways that she has learned over time to tune into her body and have tools to be able to ground. She is so generous in sharing her healing journey and her own personal experience with trauma. She shares a lot of beautiful insights here and so I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Let's get straight in. Hey Beck. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much for joining me. This has been like a few weeks in uh in motion of like coming back and forward to organizing a time. So I really appreciate all of that. It's all right. I love having these chats regardless. So Beck and I met um, through an NLP course, actually, with Hayley Carr. And what I loved about Beck was she was just so brutally honest with everything that she talks about and everything that she, she says. And I loved the way that she kind of walks the line between so many different different things. So, would love for you to share um, some of that some of that today. <laughs> um, awesome. Yeah. I mean, I um, I definitely feel like I have found myself a strange little niche that operates between like neurolinguistic programming, which you know is on the fringes of psychological science. And then I've got my social work background, but I'm also a martial artist. So I believe a lot in certain martial arts philosophies. And then I also really like getting into the woo-woo. So anything that's to do with meditation or um, breath work. I mean, it's not so woo-woo now. I think when I started doing it, it felt like it was really woo-woo. And everyone was like, what are you doing? Like breathing. That's so weird. Um, But I really like to keep an open mind, I guess. There's so many different modalities out there in terms of supporting people to heal and grow and to learn and to evolve and to expand their awareness. And I think, yeah, it's just just a fun place to play. Yeah, I mean, I know that what I loved about speaking with you, particularly in that course, was that we both had this, like you've done social work and I've done psychology and walking the line between that and, you know, I grew up in a really woo background as well. And so having these kind of pieces that are all in different areas and bringing them together, what do you, what do you love about that? 
having all the different being able to go in and out of different areas I think it just really um allows you to speak to someone as a whole and understand them as a whole and I definitely found myself with big events that I've been through or times when I needed to see a psychologist or a medical professional or a doctor, I found I got really frustrated feeling like someone was speaking to just a part of me and feeling like they didn't understand the whole picture because mm. they didn't take into account certain things. They were just there to deal with this or just there to deal with something else. And I really like the way that um, neuro-linguistic programming, especially, but also um, more somatic healing modalities like breath work and meditation I really like how they encourage you to look at the person as a whole and not just see them as the problem or not just see them as someone who's trying to fix something but anything that someone is feeling or going through is a clue to a larger picture and trying to understand that larger picture I think makes it easier to help people find the answers that they're looking for. Yeah, totally. I feel like a lot of the time you might be talking about a symptom or something specific that really, if you start to have a look at what might be going on underneath that, there is so much more that can be going on. Mm -hmm. And if you, are, you know, have an understanding of one particular modality, then that might be amazing and be incredibly effective and, and serve its purpose. But there might be other things that it might be missing out on because, yeah, we are these whole beings that have so many different sides to us and parts of us that mm. can sometimes be um, unacknowledged or sometimes invalidated, particularly if you're going somewhere where they treat more like the symptom as the thing or the main thing. Mm, absolutely especially when I worked as a social worker I just found it so frustrating because I was constantly being told that what I wanted to do was outside of my scope of practice so you know seeing families oh, with, really you know mum is not coping kids are hyperactive and then that is affecting the stability of that home so you know my job as a social worker was to come in and to support the stability of that home to make sure the kids could stay in that family home and you know I worked in child protection so it was like the main thing was always we don't want to have to remove children from the home and then me going into that situation and seeing you know there's not a single vegetable in the house everyone drinks coke like it's water and thinking okay well there's actually really simple solutions here um you know these kids are being medicalized and these kids are being given all kinds of drugs and no one's actually just stopped to like ask them what they're eating and then me wanting to do that was being told like, oh no, that's outside of your scope of practice. You're not a nutritionist. Like it just, it just was so completely obvious to me where certain issues were lying and being in that system, I wasn't able to like work with people the way I wanted to or work with people the way they needed it. And so, yeah, definitely moving away from that and being my own practitioner doing my own thing in my own business was integral because I think when you're a highly sensitive person or you're an empath or you just have a very good level of awareness and you see things, it can be very frustrating to then be put in a box where you're like, no, this is your role. You do this. Like, yeah, well, to do that, I need to do something outside of my role. Like, oh, no, no, you can't do that. Like, well, <sighs> this is very frustrating. 
Yeah. And I mean, who's telling you that you can't do that as well? Is that the system or is it a particular person who's trained in a particular way or depending well, on who you're working for, it can be yeah. so different, right? Anytime you're coming up with a care plan or something that you wanted to do for a family and they're like, no, no. Like we could refer them out. Like, great. The last thing they need is like another professional in their lives, another appointment to go to when she's got four kids under six and she doesn't have a car and she doesn't have any mm. money. Like it just made no sense to me. Yeah, there can be Creating so many silos. things going on. There's so there's so much complexity to it. And to try yeah. and narrow it down to specific symptoms or particular things that are going on, it you you lose so much richness in in what what can be happening and, and where to go. And it's so difficult. Like I've been in that experience before working in a community mental health where I was constantly asking myself, what what are we even doing here? Mm. <laughs> what what is my role in here? And am, am I making this worse? Yeah. Am I making this worse by being here? Particularly when, yeah, there are so many programs, right? And it's like they have this appointment and that appointment and they're mandated to go and do this and see this. And there's so much information that like, you know, it's just ticking mm. boxes for the sake of ticking boxes. And who is that helping? Is it helping mm. the person or is it just you ticking the box because you have to because that's your job and if you don't do that you get in trouble as a practitioner or someone who's who's working within that system mm. and, and like you and I speak about a lot we talk about um people being heightened or people being overly um stressed out or living in fight or flight that was the majority of the clientele that I used to see and trying to get a, a person or a family that is on the edge of their rope and tell them that they have now, they now have to go to all these appointments and do all these things and split all these services in a way that is really only there so that the boxes can be ticked. Mm. Um, it's just setting people up for failure. So that's why I really enjoy the idea of like bringing a lot of modalities into one or at least bringing a lot of services into one service, like multidisciplinary clinics and things like that are so great. Mm -hmm. But being able to be a holistic service and, and holistic service provider, I think is really important for some people. And some people can cope with all the different appointments and that's great and that can still exist. But being a holistic service provider is a great way to service people as a whole and not split them into all the different problems that they have. Yeah, yeah. And was there a particular point for you where you realised this isn't okay with me, this isn't what I want to be doing? Yeah. Um, I think it was when, I mean, there were so many incidents of vicarious trauma. There were so many incidents where I was like, I personally had a close call in terms of my own safety. Um, you know, I had two boys bail me up in their house with cricket bats and they didn't want to let me out because... They thought I was going to take them away. They'd been fed all these stories that weren't true. And that was personally a really difficult situation for me. And coming out of that and going back to the office and then having my supervisor be like, oh, you're so late. Why are you so late? And then me explaining what happened and her being like, okay, well, can we go now? Like, we'll just do an incident report tomorrow. Um, it's mm. not okay. Very not okay. But it was also like in seeing just seeing the turnaround of clients. So just the kids that I was supporting turning around, 
like the revolving door system, like coming back as parents and one one child in particular that ended up just breaking me entirely. I think she came back and she was 12 or 13 and she was pregnant and I just thought, I can't, <laughs> I can't do this. I had had so many amazing ideas and interventions and things that I wanted to do with her that were all knocked back because, you know, we don't have the funding or we didn't have the manpower or whatever. And then just seeing the fact that we didn't implement enough and seeing the seeing what happened when that happened is just it just ends up breaking your heart. And I was just I was a I was in constant fight or flight. And I think I lived that way for about 18 months. And you know, my housemates and my husband will tell you I was doing things like leaving um tea towel on the lit stove I just absent-mindedly would put a tea towel on the lit stove and then I was putting at one point they came to talk to me because I'd put the plastic oven mitts in the oven and I'm like what what happened here and I, I just said I have no memory of doing that and my husband was like okay well this is getting to the point now where you are so like so absent-minded so distracted so panicked so worried all of the time mm. um yeah ended up going on I think it was like two weeks of stress leave and then I didn't work again for about four or five months yeah wow and mm. I wonder if you resonate with this because there's some I can't remember who wrote about it but that um there, there is so much burnout in mm. uh in that field and if you talk to anyone who has been, you know, working in those sorts of roles, it's not the the work with the people that you you engage with because you care so much. You know, you're not mm. you're there for you're you wouldn't be there if you didn't care, right? Mm. And it's not necessarily the people that burn you out; it's the systems within which you're working in that burn you out because mm. you have to do certain things or you can't do mm. certain things. And there's all that tick boxing and paperwork and red tape and um, lack of funding that is what makes it so difficult to Ooh. stay in those roles long term. Well, especially working for a government agency, it was like if there was an election on that weekend, we wouldn't make certain decisions because we didn't know who was going to be in government come Monday. Wow. Yeah. We didn't know what decisions, what the minister, who the minister would be. Um, but yeah, it also like you said, the system creates really toxic people. And I think a lot of the people that I worked with who had been there for 20 years or so, they just, it was, it was very much the attitude of like, they protected themselves first. And if you didn't fit in the way they needed you to fit in, um, they made it as painful for you as possible. There's a lot of gaslighting. There's a lot of insinuating, like anytime you were emotional about a case or emotional about something that was happening, it was like, oh, I don't know if she can hack it. Oh, can she hack it? Oh, I don't know if she can hack it. And you felt like you spent the whole time trying to prove yourself. I even did a job interview for another job a couple of years later. And I was saying to them, look, I don't want to bash my last job. But I was describing what it was like to them. And this woman said, that's exactly the the cycle of violence that we see women describing in domestic violence you're literally describing the cycle and pattern of abuse that we see 
in DV relationships. And I was like, cool, mm-hmm. that was my, that was a job. I was in a domestic violence relationship with my job. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so interesting when you, when you look at it and I wonder, you know, those people that had been there for probably a long period of time, what, what had happened for them to get to that point where they were acting in that way or behaving in that way towards you or other people? Um, yeah, how people get to that point where that mm. becomes okay. Mm. It just, it always felt like it was a, a means of self-protection, which I think, again, when you're empathetic and you're open-minded and you have a good level of awareness, and you can see someone doing something nasty to you, but you can see why they're doing it. There's another reason why I stuck it out for so long because I could see like, oh, I know you're really stressed out and that's why you're projecting and that's why you're doing this and blah, blah, blah. But eventually like it just got so toxic. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, when it is statutory, which that job was, which means that basically like we were the, the end call, like if, if we couldn't deal with it, it was police. Mm-hmm. Um, so we always had to make these really hard decisions. And because of that, someone always had to make a decision. And if a decision was getting pushed onto you, it was almost like, you know, you, you couldn't leave work until a decision was made. You couldn't wow. finish yeah, the shift. You, couldn't, so you would often be sitting with kids in the office who were sitting there being like, where are we sleeping tonight? And no one's made a decision of what's happening. Mm-hmm. No one's found a foster carer and you're just waiting. And you don't know that the level of uncertainty was just, yeah, traumatizing yeah. for workers, but no doubt traumatizing for families as well. Yeah, everyone involved, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so when you decided that that wasn't your jam anymore <laughs> <laughs> and housemates and hubby were like, okay, what's the go (laughs) what did you kind of look at doing after your time off what kind of what well what did what did that time off give you um it was amazing I actually went and uh used my um my payout when I left so I got all like my leave and everything and I paid like my share of the rent for the next couple of months we were getting married which probably wasn't a great time for me to like not have a job, but <laughs> I paid off a couple of things there. But then I just invested in um, meditation classes because I I remember being so highly strung, like so incredibly on edge that mm. I was at the shops one day and I was backing out and this old man backed into my car and he got out and he was like, oh, there's no damage, it's fine. And I went to drive away and I pulled back into a parking lot and just burst into tears. And I remember feeling like, is this it? Is this the moment that I go insane? Like, I feel like I'm snapping. I feel like, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm, I don't know. I, I'm just going to step out of the car, take all my clothes off and just scream until someone comes <laughs> and helps me. I yeah. felt like I just reached my breaking point and yeah, I started doing meditation classes and I just started having the most profound experiences in the meditation. Like, you know, one time I was meditating and the classes were great because I always tried to meditate before and kind of not found my way. 
And um, one time when I was meditating, I remember just starting to feel so incredibly sick and it felt like my body was like rejecting being present. It didn't feel like it was safe to be present. And so my body was throwing up all of these things to try and get me to come out of this presence or come out of the meditation. And I remember meditating and being like, okay, well, I'm close to the door. And if I need to run out and vomit, I can. But Mm. it felt like, you know, even just being existing, sitting still didn't feel safe. And my body was throwing up resistance to that. And then another time I remember meditating and like opening a door in my my mind and the door slamming shut, like you're not ready for that yet. You need to slow down. And just having these, a few little experiences, I was like, I don't even know. I don't know what's going on for me. I don't know how I feel. I don't know who I am. I don't know what I want. And just spending time, I think I was going to classes like four or five times a week and doing some yoga as well. Yeah. Um, previous to that, like I'd been very gung-ho, been very crossfit and everything was very yang and very hard <laughs> and very push and fight. And that was how I balanced out, didn't really balance out my work was to go and do a hard exercise to kind of wipe mm. me out. Um, but yeah, I think meditation really supported me through that kind of falling apart process. And I think if I hadn't found that, I think I probably would have ended up institutionalized because I was so just not okay Mm. and didn't know how to make myself be okay. And that was probably one of the scariest things. Yeah. And it's so interesting that you said that you know, in meditation that even I would like relaxing or sitting still felt unsafe. Mm. And I know that I see so many people who have that experience of the moment they start to unwind and relax. It's like something pops up, your nervous system kind of responds to be like, oh, it's, it's, it's safer to be on guard than it is to Mm. relax. And at one point in time, your nervous system has learnt that that's the safest place for you to exist and to allow yourself to feel any different feels like, yeah, that lack of protection or safety in that space. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. So much of my work, when I was a social worker, I felt like I was watching my back and making sure that, you know, I had all my ducks in a row so that I wasn't going to get in trouble, like, I remember going and having an office job a couple of months after that. And every time my boss said, can we have a chat? I panicked. Mm. So I was like, oh, what did I do now? What's wrong? Who's dead? You know, and this was like a uni, I worked at a uni in the advocacy, like helping students who cheated. It was not (laughs) high risk. It was very first world, very privileged students buying essays off the internet. So every time my boss wanted to talk to me it was like panic stations and I really struggled in that job I struggled because it was so relaxed and I struggled because it was so nice and everyone was so nice and I just didn't know what to do I'd spent so long like I think it was 24 months at child protection in Victoria and after that I just didn't know how to operate Mm. in a work environment Yeah, it's like people are being nice to me. What? 
Is everything what okay? <laughs> What's wrong? What's happening? What's wrong? <laughs> mm. Wow. Mm. And so, okay, so you did meditation and yoga and all that. And then how did you start to be able to, um, I guess, open up to other ways of, of um, perceiving what was going on for you? Because you, you mentioned that kind of door shot, not ready thing. Mm. Kind of what happened after that? Um, it was definitely quite a big journey. I think I'm not quite sure the years 2016, 17, 18 are kind of a bit of a blur because mm. I think I was still quite heightened a lot of the time. I had quite a lot of anxiety, but I didn't like to admit it. I'm very much I've always been, you know, I'm the older sibling and I'm the one in the helping profession and I'm quite used to being the person who's relied on, you know, family family members and people reach out to me like, oh, such and such is struggling. Can you have a chat to them or mm-hmm. what can we do or how can we get some help from you? So I'm very used to being the person who is the one dictating to others how to help them. And I very much rejected for a long time that like I needed any help. When I first left um, that social work role, I went to the doctor to ask for a medical certificate for one day and she wrote me one for one month because she wow. said the presentation was so severe. Mm. And I didn't acknowledge that, I, not at all. And I was still having quite a lot of issues with disordered eating because that kind of control was easier. Um, I definitely would have described myself as being somewhat orthorexic so being just really obsessed with being healthy and being a real dick about it like telling people that they shouldn't eat gluten and you know trying to tell everyone that they should exercise and do crossfit Um, because controlling all of that controlling my body image controlling what went into my body controlling my macros and how many calories I burned was really easy and something yeah. that I could focus on and spend a lot of time focusing on. And I didn't have to focus on my own bullshit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, 2016 and 2017 was uh, 20, start of 2017 was when I was sexually assaulted. And so, I mean, that year, I can't even really remember. Like, there are, standout moments there are moments and I always think of it like that movie that um is it's a it's an animated movie and it's like they're all in the brain and they are uh, inside out inside out yeah yeah yeah, yeah. So like <laughs> and when like I, I always think of it like significant memories were like deposited but I was in fight or flight and that's probably the most significant or most amount of time I had spent feeling suicidal and thinking that my life wasn't worth living and because of that you know I just you know when I think back to that time it's just a gaping hole like apart from the few standout moments it's just nothing like just air almost like 2017 didn't exist I think I spent a lot of time on the couch drinking red wine um and eating chocolate and bread and like a packet of this is like a trained personal trainer eating a packet of family size party mix nearly every day 
Well, there's what you know logically and then there's coping, right? Oh, absolutely. And that was, yeah, so that was probably, it's interesting. I really do think that inability to cope was impacted by my previous time in social work. I think that if I hadn't had that time, I think I would have coped a bit better or I would have had a few more coping strategies in place. But I think I already felt somewhat beat down by that point and then being assaulted and all of the drama that came around that and you know not being believed and people insinuating that I had an affair and you know it was really crazy because at one point I just decided that it was just easier if people thought I had an affair because what came along with being assaulted was just too hard and I was already at the end of my rope and I was already so done with fighting and I was already so done with people being mad at me and angry at me and you know the hate that I was getting from um this person in particular who was connected to my abuser it was just like I just literally stuck my head in the sand for about 12 to 18 months and was like I just I get yeah, up, which is which I is eat. still a way, which is still a way to cope, right? It's like mm. even even if it's head in the sand, it's like if that's the you know the the best way to be able mm-hmm. to um, manage that situation, which sounded so awful, you know. Mm. Yeah, that's head still in the sand. Like coping the best reduce, way you can, right? Yeah, reduce the amount of stimulus. Mm then I will feel less overwhelmed. And then if I feel less overwhelmed, I'll feel more like like I can cope. Yeah. Yeah. But it wasn't really until after that and finding my feet after that and finding my voice after that, that I really started to be like, okay, I need to take a bit more control. I need to stop playing the victim. And I think, you know, you and I have worked with Hayley Carr before. I think meeting her was a big turnaround moment because she's very no bullshit and she was very I remember speaking to her and her very much and very lovingly saying to me like you are being such a fucking victim right now you have so much control that you can take back you have so much power that you can take back and you're choosing not to Mm. and then having that kind of served out to me was like okay yes I know this I know you're right. Yeah, to. because she she says it in such a like people who don't know Haley Carr should definitely go check her out because you know the way I can imagine that the way that she would have said that would have been so loving mm. and that you would have been in rapport and had that connection mm. and felt safe enough for her to be able to say that to you and for you to be able to take that on and be like, yeah, yeah. I hear you and I'm nodding, you know, versus yeah. if someone said that and you weren't, you didn't have that connection with someone um, or someone said it in a way that wasn't, you know, so loving as, as she, I can imagine she would have, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that was my first like foot in the water of personal development because karate, karate is very much personal development. I think there's a lot of aspects of it that are personal development, but actually getting a foot in the door of like what that world was like and learning, you know, very um, learning about the very surface level things at the start. I think as most of us do, like Tony Robbins and watching some of his videos and then 
learning about some of the other big key players and having people talk to you about mindset and people talk to you about emotions and people talk to you about personal responsibility. And I really love, there's this book that I have and the first chapter is like, take 100% responsibility for everything. Like mm-hmm. everything that you do, you have to take 100% responsibility for, which really stuck with me because like, okay, like, can I take responsibility for how I'm feeling? Can I start to take responsibility for how I'm behaving and my actions and how I'm pushing everyone who loves me away and then sitting on my couch at night sulking that no one's there? Like this is all stuff that I've created and realizing that was like, oh, okay, well, I can change this. It's such a game changer, isn't it? Because I Mm -hmm. think people, when people hear that, oh, you need to take responsibility, I know sometimes people get defensive around that and I did a lot of work in DBT groups, which is dialectical behavior therapy, which is where the woman, the woman who created it is called Marsha Linehan. And she talks about how, you know, it is absolutely not your fault what happened to you because Mm. some horrific shit can happen and it is not your fault or your responsibility what happened to you in the past. However, if you're wanting to create a life that is worth living for yourself, then you need to take responsibility for your healing journey because unfortunately no one is going to be able to do that for you. And once you you make that decision, then the control comes back into your court and you get to decide. And it's not to say that it's not difficult and that it can be really hard, um, but that the moment that you make that choice, then you get to make these baby steps and choose what you're wanting instead of what what mm. you, you thought was possible for you before making that decision. Yeah, and it's equal parts frustrating and liberating, right? Because mm-hmm. yeah, when you at the same to time, realize, oh my god, I've created all of this. Like, you know, for me, knowing that. I was by myself. My partner and I had split up. This is late 2017. My husband and I had split up. I was at home alone. Um, No one was coming to save me. No one was coming to rescue me. But, you know, in hindsight, when I talked to my friends about that time, they were like, you didn't write back. You didn't answer Mm -hmm. messages. You didn't answer phone calls. Half the time we didn't know if you were dead or alive. And realizing like, wow, I was just sitting there bemoaning the fact that I was alone and telling myself that no one loved me, but at the same time creating a world in which I was completely blocking everyone out and not letting them in and not letting them come and love me. Mm. Um, So realizing that like you get so frustrated at yourself, but then when you start to utilize those tools and realize how in control you are, it's really powerful because you realize like, wow, I can... I can just change this. I can just make a different decision. I can just employ a different behavior. I can actually, you know, take some action that's going to change the things that I'm not happy with. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, was there like a, a first step of that or like what you was the most, like the easiest step forward in that or? Yeah, I mean, I remember when Nathan and I were separated and it was really awful and I don't know what I was trying to prove by being by myself um and I think he like he didn't even know I'd been assaulted at that point and I think he having known me for so long had an inkling and he was just so incredibly patient and he just waited he just Mm. waited he stayed in contact 
messaged me all the time, even if I didn't write back. And I was like processing this trauma. And eventually I just had to accept his help, which was so hard for me because I don't accept help. I'm the quote unquote strong one. I am the, the, the help provider. I'm the one that is there for everyone else. I'm the person that people come to for advice. So actually I remember like literally he and I met up in a cafe and he was trying so hard to be there for me and to help me, but not push me. But his feelings were also so incredibly hurt. Um, and I remember just saying to him, like, like, could you come home and help me? Mm. And that was, oh, that was such, it was like the, the hardest but easiest moment ever because like, it was like he and I together is just where we're supposed to be. We've been together for 13 years now. Mm. Um, and to think that I think in some way I'd convinced myself that I had to do this by myself, that I had to process this by myself and that I didn't want to drag people into my mess. And then, you know, starting to realise that you have to let people into that mess because there are so many things in this world that happen to us that we just can't and shouldn't do on our own. Yeah. And I remember that moment of like just asking for his help and he was, of course, 100% there and yeah it didn't mean it was easy and I was not very forthcoming with details it took me a really long time to open up about what had happened which you know for anyone trying to help is frustrating um but yeah that was a probably a year-long process of like me slowly opening up and being more vulnerable and understanding that that was safe and yeah took a while yeah it can take time right and it's Mm. it can kind of come and go in waves even even now I'm sure that whole non-linear nature of of any of this kind of work or process yeah well not to mention the whole like trauma is non-linear healing from trauma is non-linear go through periods where you completely forget about it and then you go through periods where you can't think about anything else and then you go through periods where if someone touches you the wrong way you freak freak out it's just being a partner to that I think can't be the easiest thing in the world but um yeah I'm very lucky for the support that I have yeah yeah and so now I mean you have this wonderful business that you support people through humans through experiences as well can you tell us a bit about about what you're doing now Yeah, so it's really interesting because I never meant to be a coach in any specific way. I thought I would just be kind of generalist. I thought I would just be someone who, um, I don't know, deals with anything and everything. But it's really interesting because the more I spoke about my story, the more I started to attract women who've had similar experiences to me. And I deep down think that, you know, 99% like the statistics are one in five women will experience sexual violence by the time of from 18 years and up but I'm sure those statistics are actually much higher because it's notoriously underreported um but yeah I have started to attract very much a specific kind of client I still do a lot of generalist coaching so I'm really good at helping people definitely through any kind of transition phase. I help people when they, a lot of people come to me with things like I'm wanting to 
change this about my life. I'm wanting to move. I'm wanting to get a different job. I feel stuck. Um, but yeah, a lot of what I do is just creating a safe space for people to tell their story. Sometimes people contact me for one-off session just because they want someone to listen. They just want to tell someone what happened to them and they want someone to listen who I think telling family and friends can be really confronting and you feel like you're obliged to hold space for their emotions. So yeah, contacting someone who you can just speak to and you have no responsibility and they take care of themselves, I think can be really, really supportive. Mm, and having your experience validated and just being mm. seen for what it is because bless our, you know, family and friends, but they'll have their own opinions about what's happened or what you should or could do. And that can be quite difficult when you're just coming to terms with what might have happened in your experience, let alone, like you said, needing to hold space for, <laughs> for someone else's response to that. Yeah. Absolutely. Like telling my parents was, I didn't even tell my parents. I got like super choked up and then I just like elbowed Nathan and he had to do it. Um, you know, telling my brother was hard. And, you know, there's certain times where I've told people and their responses have really shocked me. And I think people don't know how to cope with that information. And I, it can be really disconcerting when you are coming, like you said, coming to terms with it yourself to tell someone and have a response that is not supportive. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, I lost a lot of friends because I told people what happened and they didn't really know how to respond. And I took that really personally. Um, you know, some people just choosing to, you know, make light of it because they felt so uncomfortable or people choosing to get really angry. And then I feel like I had to mitigate their behavior and I was responsible for their behavior. Um, so yeah, I think getting professional support um, and professional support in whatever way that feels right to you. I saw a sexual assault counselor and I didn't love that. Um, yeah. I've always found much better responses and much better support from people in the wellness space and people in the personal development space. Yeah, there's not one, one person isn't the answer, right? I no. think we can glorify a particular profession, but at yeah. the end of the day, you might not jam with a particular person or a particular way of uh, being held in space. And that, you know, this is something that I say so often, like it's okay if a psychologist or a therapist isn't your jam and you'd prefer, you know, a coach or a, a chiro or a body worker or a healer or, or someone else in that at any different stage in the journey, you might gravitate mm. towards different kinds of people as well. And that's totally okay. And that, you know, I think sometimes, you know, us in that social, emotional well-being space um, being able to have a sense of where someone is at and support them to be able to kind of reach out to other other areas and that it's mm. so we can all work together um, there's space for everyone to to have their their own niche and, and that people get to choose what's going to be right for them versus us telling them what they should or shouldn't be doing <laughs> depending on their experience because I mean yeah. at the end of the day they're going to know better than you I mean, I, my number one professional, my main professional, my favorite professional was my 
um, Chinese medicine practitioner. Mm. And if you are on the Gold Coast at all, I cannot speak highly enough of Sickle being GC, but it's Alistair Evans. And he was my main medical person. Like I just saw him for everything for about six years. And he was probably one of the first person, probably nearly the first person that I told that I was assaulted just because it's not about the kind of professional you're seeing, whether it's a doctor or whether it's a chiro, whether it's a psychologist, it's about finding someone that you feel like you can trust and who's going to respond in an appropriate way. And he was just probably one of the most supportive people in my life that I've ever met. He's really incredible. I love that. So seeking out support from people that you actually have a connection with and you feel held and safe to be Mm -hmm. able to talk about what you're wanting to talk about. I wonder if you now, do you have specific kinds of, um, I guess, your own practices that you you gravitate towards to support kind of grounding or to give yourself space to get curious as to what's going on within your Ooh. internal and external worlds now? Yeah, absolutely. I, um, I saw a friend of mine who's a shamanic healer uh, around June last year because I was really struggling with... Um, my work and I wasn't feeling good in my work and I wasn't feeling settled in what I was doing and I I remember saying that I felt like uh, an imposter and this is a really common thing like a lot of people in personal development talk about imposter syndrome and you know it's all about us thinking that we're not good enough etc etc and this friend of mine said well you kind of are and that really (laughs) took me by surprise again very lovingly um And he said, you know, you're just not there yet. You haven't really connected to your emotions since everything happened to you a couple of years ago. He's like, I still feel you feeling disconnected from your emotions. And he asked me, where do you feel like your emotions are? And I remember saying, like, I feel like you're on the other side of the room. Mm Because I think the main thing I was finding at that point was like, I would be fine for ages. And then I would have a massive emotional breakdown. And I think it was subconsciously I was very much limiting my emotional expression until you know everything boiled over and then I just couldn't stop crying so I would want to be okay because you know I'd done all the work and I'd been you know seeing certain people and I'd been doing certain practices but finally that last little thing of connecting back to my emotional self which hadn't felt safe was what I needed to do next so it was actually really handy that that happened just before lockdown in Melbourne and I spent the next six months just completely like just completely diving into all those kind of somatic practices which I hadn't really had that much time in so just things like breath work and meditation and learning about breath work and learning about why it works and why it's so good for you and how it can promote healing you know I still you know I've never studied breath work I still don't necessarily understand how it can be so profound I know the basics in terms of like supporting you to switch off your fight or flight system and bringing you back into a more um you know physiological calm state but you know there there's there's been changes I've felt in myself that I can't even quantify and I can't even explain and that's why I'm so in love with that kind of practice. So doing breath work every day, meditating a couple of times a week, 
I know anytime I'm starting to feel frustrated or disconnected, if I look back on my practices, then often it's times when I started to shortcut things or I've started to miss meditations. Mm. Um, but yeah, just spending time with myself, I think has had the most profound effect. It has allowed me to, I guess, just find some sense of like, coming home to myself or feeling some kind of normal or feeling some kind of wholeness which I think is what a lot of us are searching for in the end but yeah it's just coming back to that calm state I think I think since about 2012 I've been heightened so it makes sense to me to think that it's going to take me a while to consistently come back to calm and have that be my my general way of being yeah and it's so difficult even if you think about you know you live in a mountains kind of community yeah like still Mm. kind of attached to not like super mountains in the mountains but I mean you know when you're living with other people and in today's society and what's going on it is so fast paced and i don't think that we're necessarily our like our nervous system and our bodies are wired to be able mm. to exist in this kind of a setting where we're constantly stimulated and have so many things going on and that's the expectation mm. that's the expectation of workplaces and you know talking to people that worked in kind of corporate spaces during COVID, for example, and the expectation was to just carry on as normal, you know, like not every place was like that, but, you know, that we we tend to discount that, yeah, we are very human <laughs> and that means uh, having certain certain ways of needing to be able to come back to, to calm or to be grounded and, and feel safe and connected which is, I guess I call that green zone, being able to come back to the green zone, coming back home and mm. um, to yourself and that it's it's difficult to be able to do that unless you carve out the time and really create space for that intentionally in your day-to-day. Mm. And it doesn't have to be huge. Like it's not, you know, you see Instagram influencers and people talking about like meditating for two hours a day and I think general public see that sometimes and think like well I don't have time for that I can't do that (laughs) but it doesn't have to be huge you know there's been times where I've forgotten to do my breath work and I do it in the car when I land at the shops because I've remembered and I don't want to miss it I don't want to have that missing from my day and so I just park I take a moment to like settle where I am and I do my breath work and people will surely walk past the car and like think what is she doing like what is is going on here but it doesn't really matter because in the end like okay yeah I feel settled I feel grounded I feel good to go I feel ready to head out into the world and one of the main things people kept speaking to me about in COVID was like I just I thought I'd be so productive because I've got all this time now um and you know I'm just finding myself really struggling and Mm. it's so interesting to me that people think that the problem that you had was time or the problem that you had was your productivity or the problem that you had was your ability to efficiently manage all the things that are going on in your life and then COVID hits and all of those apparent problems are taken away that you still feel crap and you still feel empty and you still feel distant from other people in your life and I think a lot of people especially for the hectic lockdowns like we had in Victoria 
people just didn't really understand why they felt so lost. Oh, and throw a and lot of uncertainty me, onto that as well, right? Oh, like, absolutely. Not absolutely. knowing what's going on and what that can do for your body on top of all that. Yeah. And but the lack of connection, the lack of like, you know, there's there's only so many Zoom trivia nights you could do <laughs> or Zoom family dinners that you could do before you actually I definitely started to feel just almost antsy to just like you know if I go to the shops can I just brush up against someone a little bit just to like touch someone else Mm -hmm. because I think we really underestimated you know when I think about this I think about in terms of like what I've read about Dr. Joe Dispenza and he talks about every single thing every single one is vibrating at a certain level everything has an energy field and it makes me curious as to what our needs are in terms of being around those energy fields and being around other people and what we need to feel good or to feel better or to feel okay and actually being around people I think is a really important part of that maybe not for everyone but that's definitely how I felt like if I went out and saw someone else that I knew it was just the most exciting thing I think we really underestimated how significant the lockdowns would be. And I mm. I suspect that the repercussions will be felt for, you know, at least another couple of years. That isolation yeah. and yeah absolutely and you're so right. I mean as humans we need humans and we need human connection mm. and you know part of what what we do is we we attune to people in our environment at any point in time we look at someone and we scan our environment to see whether or not that person is you know someone who's going to be comforting and and offer us a sense of safety and calm mm-hmm. and that you know as humans we need other humans to be able to do that for us and in the absence of that i would love to see some research actually around you know how that is affected through a screen <laughs> because mm, i don't think it's yeah oh with masks yeah so I don't know um yeah what what that's about but yeah absolutely being even just for us to be able to be in another person's presence and and feel that is is so important and uh yeah be missing out on that big time but if you talk about like you and me like we've been talking we the majority of our relationship was founded over the internet and we've met up once in person and that once in person was just like you know sticking two firecrackers together because it's like oh my god like we're actually here and the energy of like actually physically being there we could have talked for 24 hours straight oh totally totally and yeah I mean it's not to say that you can't create connections and have beautiful friendships Mm. develop you know over over the internet but there is absolutely something to be said about when you're in the room and you can hold each other and Mm. there's something incredibly calming around that as well being able to Mm. embrace another human and 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 share in something really special Mm. like talking to you back (laughs) (laughs) Look, thank you so much for, for yeah, sharing your story and only a snippet, you know, of, of your journey. I really appreciate, um, yeah, how the way that you've, you've gone through certain experiences in your life, you've now been able to take that and create an offering that is so meaningful and beautiful and supports other women to be able to do the same. I wonder 
where if people are kind of interested in finding out a bit more about what you do, how they can work with you, where they can find you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everything, you can get a really great sense of who I am from my Instagram, um, which is the Beck Cameron Coach. Um, but I do have a website as well, which is www.beckcameron.com. And that has all of my offerings at the moment the big thing is my mastermind so I'm currently running a mastermind called the make it happen mastermind because I just saw so many people reaching out talking about how they didn't know how to start something they didn't know how to change something they didn't know how to do that bit where you dive in and you finally make the commitment and how to make it stick and so there's a lot of neuro-linguistic programming theory in there there's a lot of um, NLP processes and things like that because you know I'm just in love with NLP um, and so that will probably be running again later this year um, but otherwise there's obviously the one-on-one -on -one coaching and opportunities like that. Amazing amazing I love it I love it thank you Beck. thank you for joining me today much love can't thank wait to you. see you again in human and give you a big squeeze. <laughs> All right take care lovey. Thank you so much for joining me today. I so appreciate your time. If what we spoke about in this episode is totally your jam, please subscribe so you don't miss out on the epic conversations that are to come. If you'd like to know more about me or ways we can continue to play, head on over to laurarizzuto.com or you can check me out on my Insta at laurarizzuto underscore. It's also where you can sign up to the waitlist for my online mentorship, What Happens in Vegas, where we get to deep dive into learning the language of your nervous system safely to embody the life that you want. Apart from that, I will catch you in the next episode. Much love and speak soon.